Welcome to Yarns at Yin Hu, a podcast about the fiber arts and other post-apocalyptic skills. This is episode 243, four, count them, four, Sunday, March 8th, 2020. You can find me on social media as Sarah Pomegranate, and each time I record an episode, I post photographs, show notes, and links to things I talk about on my website, yarnsatyinhu.com. This episode contains the following segments, the back porch, the front porch, hashtag power pantry, and so forth. This podcast is supported through purchases of my pattern designs on Ravelry. Thank you so much for making a purchase and supporting the show. There are a few upcoming events I'd like to remind you of. The first is that I will be teaching a deep study of wool course at the Tatter Textile Library in Brooklyn, New York. That class is a four-session series, and the first session is at the end of March. I will put a link in the show notes if you would like to sign up or contact Tatter for more information. If you have questions about the class, you can also feel free to send me a personal message. I'm also running a fiber retreat. It's called the Knit Local Getaway. It's been going for a couple of years now, and it takes place in early spring. So we will be in Washington County, New York at the end of April. And this retreat coincides with the Washington County Farm and Fiber Tour. And we spend our retreat time hanging out together at St. Mary's Lodge and touring wonderful farms and a mill and yarn shops that are in the area. It's a two-night stay. It's Friday late afternoon, early evening through Sunday morning. And it's a very affordable option if you've always wanted to take part in a retreat, um, but you've found lots of the options rather spendy. So if you're in the area and transportation isn't in a big issue, then you could find this retreat a very fun and affordable option. And you can contact me for more information. There are also links on my website and we have a discussion chat on Ravelry. Most of the folks who have been coming for several years now have already registered and I do have spots available on the retreat. So if you're looking to go, you probably don't need to go on any kind of a waiting list at this point. You could just register for the event. Hello, everyone, and welcome. I hope this podcast finds you well. This morning, I drove over to the studio in the very, very wee hours as we had a time change, and I have a lot to do today, including trying to find toilet paper at the grocery store. So I wanted to get an early start, and I drove over in the light of the nearly full worm moon. It will be full tomorrow, March 9th, and it was sitting rather low on the horizon, and all of the air was very dark and crisp and cold. 
So now I'm here and things are starting to lighten up a bit and I'm ready to talk about knitting and sewing and even a little bit of spinning with you. I usually don't have a regular spinning segment, but I have been working on a little bit of spinning because I was asked to do a demonstration for the art department this past week and I brought a Jacob fleece and I brought lots of different types of spindles and I brought my spinning wheel and I worked on doing spinning on actually all of those because I demonstrated all of the spindles. So I had little projects going on all of them. And on my wheel, I began to spin some combed top from Southern Cross Fiber that was a gift from a listener. I realized as I started working on the show notes for this episode that I neglected to record that fiber in my Ravelry stash, and I neglected to record the listener who gifted me that fiber. I'm so ashamed. I need to keep better track of those things and record them photographically and add details in Ravelry. So this fiber is really, really nice to spin. It's a BFL top and it's in rather dark and muted colors. I'm spinning it at my default sort of kind of fine um, weight and I plan to ply this with a whole bunch of little turtles that I have been spinning on my Turkish spindles as kind of like a travel project, a daily meditation. I have lots and lots and lots of very finely spun singles in an array of different colors. And an idea I had for a spinning project that I talked about um, probably over the summer because that's the last time I did any serious spinning on my wheel. I um, have this idea that I will ply together all of these little turtles with something rather deep and muted to kind of balance it. I was even thinking about the possibility of making that a three-ply and adding in a strand of something else that was one consistent color throughout. It would make the yarn heavier, so I'm not sure about that, but I had a lot of fun using my wheel and just spinning throughout the day this past week answering students' questions, encouraging them to touch all the things that were on the table, and talking about uh, the things I was wearing. I was wearing my um, hand-spun, hand-dyed, and hand-knit sweater from the little Hog Island fleece I purchased with Emily, and I was wearing handmade clothing and hand-knit socks, So I was talking more to the chaperones and the teachers who were there about my endeavor toward a mostly handmade wardrobe and uh, topics relating to sustainability and so forth. So it was a really fun day and a chance to do some spinning. When I bought my wheel, I thought I would be sitting by the fire 
spinning as a winter activity, but it turns out that I really like taking my wheel outside. And so most of my spinning happens during the summer months. So I feel like I got a little bit of a head start on this project and maybe about a quarter of that comb top is spun up already. So maybe it won't be too long before I get that entire four ounces spun up. All right, so for the knitting, I finished a project since my last recording. It's the Scalloway Tam designed by Marie Wallen, and it is the fourth, the fourth design I've knit from Marie Wallen's collection, Shetland. I knit this exclusively in British Breeds yarn. In the past, I've been mixing in my British Breeds with Jameson and Smith, but I've pretty much used up all of my Jameson and Smith yarn. So this was entirely in the British Breeds. This pattern was not created for the British Breeds collection, so I needed to look at the colors and then make substitutions for each of them. And I think it worked out pretty well. I love the muted colors, the glossy sheen to this yarn, and the sheepy smell it has when I open my project bag. It's really lovely. Um, I did not do the corrugated band around the brim. Instead, I just did a one-by-one twisted rib. And I also, I think I took me a little while to understand the directions for the crown decreases and how the marker shifts one during each round that you make a decrease. So I think the first few times I did a decrease, I was doing it a bit incorrectly, but then I realized my mistake and I just adjusted it. I think it's fine. I think if you examined this hat, you would find that it's not precisely as Marie Wallen intended. Um, but I'm having a lot of fun wearing it. And um, when I blocked it, it really bloomed and the colors kind of melded together a little bit more. It's nice and warm, but it's light and it's just a lot of fun to wear. I'm also working on a toe up sock design. I finished my first sock and now I'm starting on the second and starting to write down some of my pattern notes. And I'm also thinking about a right and left sock for this design. Um, I'm thinking about the heel and the fit of the heel and how to resolve the design at the cuff and sort of make it blend into the cuff of this sock. And I'm using for this design the beautiful Northampton um, American-made superwash merino dyed by Carol of Foster Sheep Farm. It's in this really gorgeous teal color, and the design has uh, watery inspiration. In fact, I'm working on a set of designs 
I'm kind of working on them all at the same time. Um, and they all have a single inspiration source. So I'm unsure about releasing these one at a time or trying to do a collection, which I have never done before. Um, but I think I would like to work through all of these ideas at least a little bit before I make that decision regarding how I will release these. Um, it's lots of fun and it's keeping me reading and researching a little bit. So it's been really engaging my time and interest. Finally, I've been knitting a bit on my Ravenclaw mitts. This design is Wit Beyond Measure. It's one of four in a collection by Diana Walla that coincides with the Hogwarts houses. I'm knitting the Ravenclaw mitts in beautiful tuku wool on US zero needles. <laughs> I finished the cuff and I'm working my way up uh, toward the thumb gusset with my knitting. And this is mitt number two. I have one finished except for the thumb and it's on hold. Primarily, I did that knitting last year. So I'm working toward the finish on these mitts this year. The front porch. I've been thinking about casting on a garment project, something that would be a versatile piece for spring and summer wear. And I keep coming back to an Olga Baraya Kafelian pattern called Sakasama. It translates upside down from Japanese and it is a kind of a shell or a shrug that can be worn right side up or upside down. It kind of reminds me of a Stephen West design that I've knit, except this has a little bit of a sleeve to it, uh, whereas the Stephen West is more of a tank when it's worn in one direction. And it's loose and drapey and a great layering piece. It's from Olga's uh, Transform collection where she has pieces that can be worn numerous ways. And I enjoy pieces I have like that. I've also been getting a lot of wear out of my iris shrug. So I think this type of garment is something that I would use a lot. So I've been looking in my stash to see what yarn weights um, would offer enough drape for this design and color that might be interesting for spring or versatile maybe for spring and enough yardage that uh, I can knit this design. So I suspect that I will be casting on this Sakasama jacket very soon. This month, I'm excited to talk about sheet pan cooking. 
This is a tried and true method in my kitchen that I haven't been using for very long, but since I started with one particular recipe, I seem to come back to this again and again, and I feel like it is kind of like a signature move of mine for getting dinner on the table. I wonder if sheet pan cooking might seem like old news to a lot of listeners because I have a feeling that many of you may have been using recipes like this for a while, but they seem to be gaining in popularity and there are quite a few lists online of different recipe ideas. For me, it all started with a Brussels sprouts recipe that I learned probably four or five years ago. I think I may have mentioned it on the show at some point, but it involves making Brussels sprouts taste pretty much like candy. Growing up, I was always treated to steamed versions of cabbage-like vegetables, And they always seemed very gassy and unappealing. And a friend was hosting a kind of a cooking class in her home. And the chef who was there taught us how to make these roasted Brussels sprouts. And I fell in love with them. To do this, you take Brussels sprouts and trim them and cut them in half. Toss them with a little bit of olive oil and some salt and spread them out cut side down on a sheet pan and you roast them in a 375 degree oven until they are as crispy or tender as you like. You can kind of take them to whatever degree you like. The more toasty you get them, the nuttier the flavor will develop and also some of their sugars will start caramelizing. While they're roasting in the oven, you take just a very small uh, saucepan and into it you put equal parts maple syrup, a really nice quality mustard, and coconut oil. And you just melt these together to form a glaze. A little goes a long way, or you can like really do it up and have these Brussels sprouts swimming in the glaze. I like a moderate amount. When the Brussels sprouts are done, you simply toss them in the glaze and keep them very warm for serving. They're also just fine at room temperature. And for this reason, I like to include them on a Thanksgiving menu because they seem to have very wide appeal and there's something that could just be sitting on the table and I don't have to worry about keeping it hot. I'll keep that for the mashed potatoes (laughs) because sometimes I have a hard time delivering everything hot to the table for a big meal like that. These are the vegetables that got me thinking about how tasty and delicious other roasted vegetables can be. And a sheet pan dinner at my house 
usually consists of one sheet pan of roasted potatoes and carrots and another with roasted boneless, skinless chicken thighs. And then I make a nice little sauce with some mustard, mayonnaise, and lemon juice combined, sometimes yogurt if I don't have mayo on hand. And I just kind of drizzle that over the vegetables on the plate. And it makes for a really nice dinner and really awesome leftovers because you can keep doing things with the chicken or whatever protein and the vegetables through the rest of the week. And that therein lies the appeal of the sheet pan dinner because you can make a lot of food quickly and then it's dinner for more than just one night. The recipe I really adore for sheet pan chicken is from Eric Kim. It's on the Food 52 website and it's called Sheet Pan Chicken Thighs with Magic Spice Blend. Eric Kim uses, um, I'm not sure if they're bone in, bone in skin on chicken thighs. I usually just buy the boneless skinless. Um, it's just a little easier to work with. But the Magic Spice blend includes a little bit of brown sugar, smoked paprika, cayenne pepper. It includes salt and also celery seed, which I think gives it an amazing flavor and it pairs really well with mustard in the glaze or sauce that I make. Uh, so I usually make a big batch of the Magic Spice Blend. I use some that night and then I just put the rest in a small dish and store it in my cupboard. It's also really good over vegetables, the same spice blend. There's garlic powder in the recipe. I usually don't put garlic powder in my food. Um... I just don't care for the aftertaste of it sometimes um, and substitute just a little bit of freshly cracked black pepper or something like that in the mix. But the combination of the brown sugar, salt, celery seed, the smoky paprika, it's really good and it gives a nice color also to your meats. I have used this um, same spice blend on tofu. It's also really good and a little bit goes a long way. Another sheet pan recipe I love is baked tofu with coconut kale. That is absolutely delicious. And I like to top that with Trader Joe's um, chili lime cashews as a garnish. It's really perfect. A recipe I thought I might try this past week and tell you about, but I didn't get to, so it will be coming up this week. I've been looking quite a bit at the Genius Recipes videos on Food52's website, and I follow them on Instagram, and something came up that I think is the perfect merger of last month's Power Pantry, which had to do with fruit in savory dishes 
and this month's, which is the sheet pan cooking. The recipe is cauliflower korma with blackened raisins. And the recipe starts by creating florets of a big head of cauliflower and roasting it and then using that as the basis for an Indian korma dish or a take on an Indian korma dish and then putting these blackened raisins and almonds over the top as a garnish. It sounds really, really good. And I am eager to make that recipe this week. So I will link that in the show notes. I think that the Genius Recipes offer uh, a number of interesting skills that can be combined and you can kind of like riff on them for other um, meals in your kitchen. So I've been looking at them pretty carefully and thinking about ways to enhance and extend the skills in a particular recipe for other meals. One thing I'm curious about is using cauliflower, roasted cauliflower, and making that a substitution for buffalo wings. I've seen a lot of this kind of recipe and never tried it. Uh, Always, um, there seem to be a lot of those posts going up around the Super Bowl. And I don't watch the Super Bowl, so I don't really make any Super Bowl food. But if you've made it, I'd really like to hear from you and see what recipe or what techniques you use for cauliflower buffalo wings. Um, And I prefer to roast. I know some of them are fried or deep fried, and I am very unlikely to do that. So I'm looking to see if there's any way to get a nice texture and flavor out of something that I've roasted in my oven. Plus, of course, any sheet pan dinner ideas that you have. And if you try any of the recipes I suggest, I'd love to know what you think about them. For the past few weeks, I've been working steadily on a pretty intense project. I have been longing for a duster and browsing different patterns and thinking about what design to choose and what fabric would be perfect. And I finally decided on the Cambria Duster by Friday Pattern Company. And I am sewing this project in absolutely drapey and gorgeous woolsey from Merchant and Mills. This is a spendy project, um, but I really wanted to create a special wardrobe piece that would last a long time and be really versatile in I guess three seasons. This was a three-season garment. And so I thought a lot, a lot, a lot about it (laughs) and finally decided on the Cambria Duster. One of the reasons for that is that it's available in a paper version. And I 
I just really don't like to fuss too much with PDF patterns, especially for something that's extensive. So the Cambria Duster is a long-sleeved ankle or I guess shin length unlined jacket. So it has really big pattern pieces and that's just a lot to handle with a PDF version or figuring out how to go and get this printed. Another reason I like the Cambria Duster is that it has really big lapels. And I think this keeps the unstructured jacket from looking like a bathrobe. I really want it to look like a jacket, like an outerwear layering piece. And some of the dusters seem to look robe-like. And I guess that could be part of their appeal if you wanted to use it for something like a robe. But in this case, I want to keep the jacket look. Another reason I chose this pattern is that I found a complete video tutorial on Creative Bug. By uh, it's done by designer Chelsea from Friday Pattern Company. It's pretty clear and cohesive, and was a nice addition to following the pattern directions that are provided in the booklet. Finally, I thought that this offered some a blend of some techniques I've used because I've made that Merchant and Mills um, quarter-lined jacket, um, and there's a lot of finishing on this Cambria duster. It is unlined, and all of the seams are finished in a variety of ways. So I thought this would add an element of challenge to this project. So I, after a lot of deliberation, I bought the pattern and the fabric from Oak Fabrics, and they have a really nice array of different uh, unusual fabrics, a lot of high-end things. I really like the searchability of their website, and their delivery was very quick. They also offer full yard and half yard cuts, which can be convenient if it's an expensive fabric and you'd like to keep from buying an entire additional yard if you only need a portion of it. The Woolsey from Merchant and Mills is absolutely luscious. I bought the color called Altamara, which is translates high seas. It's a beautiful marine green blue. And this fabric is a double gauze. I was looking to see how much Woolsey is like Lindsay Woolsey, which is a fabric that was popular in early America. I'm not sure about around the world, but I know that it's mentioned in a lot of the literature that I read in the early American period. And that's a linen or cotton warped fabric with a wool weft, which gave the fabric 
strength, but also warmth. And I think that's the same idea behind the Merchant and Mills Woolsey, but the construction is a little more sophisticated. So the Woolsey is a double gauze and it's laundered at the mill so that you don't have to worry about taking precautions in washing your fabric once you get it. So I just ironed it and started laying out the pattern pieces. It's 78% linen, 16% wool, and 6% poly. And each color, as far as I can tell in looking at these colors online, there's the color of the fabric and then the, the double gauze layer behind uh, the fabric or the backside is a lighter muted variation of the color. So it's kind of convenient to sew with in that way because there's a very definitive right and wrong side that are easy to see. And so you don't have to label the back of every single pattern piece as you're working with it. It frays quite readily. <laughs> um, I haven't had a problem with things really stretching out of shape. Of course, this is a rather unstructured piece. I mean, it's not fitted. There aren't tucks and gathers and things like that. So it doesn't really matter if it stretches a little bit. But the thing that I've had to deal with continually is fraying as I work with the fabric. It is beautifully drapey. Um, I think it's going to work really, really well for this duster. So I've been slowly and steadily working on it. I cut out the pattern pieces. I spent um, quite a long session in putting the pattern pieces on the fabric and cutting it out. I had just enough fabric. So I really needed to lay out the entire thing before I started cutting to make sure that I could fit all of the pattern pieces on. And um, with three and a half yards of fabric in my very tiny house, that was a project. So I used my dining room table and spent the afternoon cutting. And then I spent a couple of sessions where I just made a few seams, put together a few pieces I watched the tutorial video quite a few times. And then yesterday, I spent about five hours, six hours working on this project and took it to the point where I was able to sew one of the side seams, put my arm through and see if this thing was going to really work and fit. And I think it's going to be great absolutely great. I haven't been this excited about a garment in quite a while. The technique used to bind most of the seams is called a Hong Kong finish. It's a technique whereby you use bias tape around the raw edges of a seam. Either you bind them together with bias tape or you iron the seam 
so that you press it apart and then you bind each side of the seam separately. So as you can imagine, in different parts of the garment, you would be using a different kind of finishing technique. Also in the shoulders of the jacket, that kind of binding would be a little bit bulky. So those are bound off with um, over edge or zigzag stitch. Chelsea shows how to use double fold bias tape and she just clips it. She doesn't use pins throughout the tutorial. I never saw a pin. She uses little quilting clips and she folds the double fold bias tape around the um, raw edge and then she sews it in one go. She makes it look very easy and quick. However, <laughs> that technique is really tricky, especially anywhere there's a curve. And it's really easy to get ripples and bunching or miss the back side as you're sewing and not really catch both edges of this bias tape as you're sewing. I think she makes it look deceptively simple. And I think there are a lot of problems with using a method like that. So I looked up a Hong Kong finish and found that there are actually a couple ways to do it. And one of the ways is to use single fold bias tape and you attach it in a more traditional way by unfolding the bias tape, putting it up against your raw edge and making a seam like you would traditionally do, and then folding it over but opening it up as you do so so that the back side of the bias tape shows its raw edge, but it's cut on the bias so it's, it's not going to fray. Um, and it's also the part that's folded back against the garment so you really never see that exposed. For me, this is a much more secure way of doing a Hong Kong finish and a bound seam. And since I plan to make all of my own bias tape for this project, I decided that that's the way I would go. And I'm really pleased with my decision. Uh, it's definitely tricky and fiddly in some parts. And I had to go back and make sure that I caught the the back portion of the bias tape as I was sewing that second seam. It's also a lot more sewing because for each edge that you're binding, you need to sew twice, once to attach the bias tape and then again to catch it and pin it down. So it's a lot of thread. It's a lot of bobbin winding. And it's a lot of checking, checking, checking to make sure that everything has been caught by the, the sewing machine. I think I made about 18 yards of bias tape. I found a really beautiful floral print at Joann's in their quilting cotton section. To me, it looks like a Rifle Paper Company knockoff. It's in really lovely minty green and teal that coordinates perfectly with the Woolsey fabric I bought. And I just love the floral design on it. 
So I, yeah, I think it was about 18 yards of single fold bias tape. And at one point I started to worry if I had enough and I was going to have to cut more bias tape, but I'm okay. I, I think I have even some left over to do the bottom of the jacket or the sleeves if I want. And I was able to do uh, all of the side seams just fine. <laughs> we have temperatures in the mid 60s arriving tomorrow. And so I think it's starting to be the perfect weather for this Cambria duster. And I hope to finish this afternoon. Thanks for listening. I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful week full of lots of time for the crafting you enjoy. Bye-bye.